G'day, my name is Victor Fitzhenry, born 1948 in Paddington, Sydney, born in Paddington, raised in Bondi Beach. Going to uh, try and find out a few things about the Australian iconic Royal Life Saving Society, which I was a member of back in 1976, 77, 78, through to 79. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and how you became involved in surfing. A boy from Paddington at the time was not really on the agenda until, of course, the craze all started in the early 60s. We were surfing type of thing at from Paddington to Bondi Beach, walking and getting the bus out there occasionally. No surfboards in those days. For us, rubber surf mats, they were made in uh, a place in Paddington, a factory there called Hardy Rubber Company. And we used to buy uh, rubber surf mats from them. And they were a, quite a large one, about three and a half to four foot long. And uh, we'd take them out to Bondi Beach and uh, subsequently try and stand on them. And only being very young at the time, this is like 1958-59. And uh, I was only 10 or 11 years of age then. And uh, we could stand on them, being a lightweight and... Uh, We'd surf on these rubber mats as best we could. Um, back in then, we graduated in high school to Bondi Wellington Street High School. There we got uh, an influx of the local community in Bondi and uh, met quite a few local surfers. And subsequently, we were dragged into the surfing scene in the 60s at South Bondi. We used to hang out down at right down the southern end of South Bondi Beach at ramp number one, which went down to the sand. And uh, right up against the rock face of the cliff there was an old brick um, shed. It had a steel door on it, and people used to keep their surfboards locked up in there. And only members of the, of the South Bondi Board Club had keys to get into this steel door in a solid concrete block um, room type of thing which was under the cliff face we called it the polio pit because the water was constantly dripping in there and there was moss and uh, ferns and agate stuff it was all over the top of the roof and it was mould everywhere so it was a pretty obnoxious place but we kept our surfboards there when we got them temporarily and uh, give you a place to keep them rather than carrying them all the way from Paddington to Bondi which I did for many years the boards in those days were 10 foot long and uh, they weighed quite a bit so it was quite a task to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning walk to Bondi Beach which took us about an hour carrying a 10 foot surfboard surf all day uh, I mean all day right up until 6 of the night you'd have 4 or 5 3 hour surf sessions and uh, then walk your board back to Paddington which we did and um come back the next day which would be Saturday Sunday and uh, and then lock it up at home for the Monday to Friday until the weekend came and we took off back to the beach again um, this happened for uh, quite a number of years right up to about 62 63 from memory Midger Farrelly won the Makaha surfboard championship in Makaha Hawaii in 63 and that put the Australian surfing scene right on the map. And uh, we were young young guys at the time and 
were thoroughly um, obsessed with the fact that Midget had won a world championship board event, and um, yeah, it was uh, that took that's when surfing really took off in this country. Back in those days, early sixties, how many of you young blokes were involved in the South Bondi Board Riders Club? Um, hard to really put a figure on numbers because there was no official enrolment or fees or money or anything of that nature. It was all word of mouth. But I can tell you that um, one time there, during a course of an incident that maybe you'll get onto later on, we could talk about, I did count one particular Saturday, 110 surfboards at the South Bondi number one ramp where we all used to hang out. 110 boards were laying on. There was a three-layer pole guardrail that went all around the beach Campbell Parade, the war promenade, and the bottom row we used to lay our surfboards on it face down so the wax wouldn't melt in the hot sun, and I counted 110 boards there one day, so that sort of gives you a bit of an idea of how many people were members of the South Bondi Board Riders Club in the 60s, around 80 to 100 people, yeah. So as the surfing culture grew in Bondi, it would have developed its own particular characteristics and developed interesting relationships with the other interested parties. I'm thinking about uh, regulations that were imposed by the Waverley Council and the relationship between the board riders and the Surf Life Saving Club. Can you elaborate on that? To a degree I could, yes. It, um, they they tended to be a little um, a bit of friction type of thing there. The Waverley Council put a, a fee on every surf craft that was uh, to be used in the Waverley district. That would be Bronte Beach, Tamarama and uh, Bondi. They had a fee and you had to go to Waverley Council chambers, obtain a sticker, pay your fee and that would last for 12 months. Attach it to your surfboard or surf craft, whatever it may be, and that entitle you to actually surf at Bondi Beach, Tamarama or Bronte. Subsequently, if you didn't have one on or couldn't afford it or it came off, which they often did, salt water and a hot sun would uh, loosen the glue and they'd come off. If they came off and a beach inspector or a surf club member would see that your surf craft had no... Uh, registration sticker as they called them they would confiscate your board and take it up to the Bondi Pavilion area and lock it up in a back room they had there and put it under lock and key until you came claimed the board and paid the necessary fee got the sticker put on the board then they'd give it back to you and you could take it and go back and surf we thought that was a bit draconian in, in those days back in the 60s and of course, money was uh, tight, so we didn't have a lot of money as as young 16-year-old boys and girls, so we took offence to this, and um, many times there, you'd fall off your board in a wipeout out in the waves, and the board would get washed up on the sand, and if you weren't a very good fast swimmer and got in to the beach before the board uh, was floating around at the high tide mark for too long, 
did get spotted by a beach inspector and would get picked up and taken. So if you, the quicker swimmer you were, the better you would chance you were getting there, getting aboard, picking it up and going back out in the surf and not being discovered that your sticker's missing. If they come along to take your board, many a times we would have to defend ourselves, grab the board off the beach inspector and rip it out of their arms and take off. You know, subsequently we got a bit of a reputation as being rebellious uh, hoodlums. We, in a way, I guess, and in the eyes of reality, I guess you could say it's a bit correct to a degree. You know, we weren't hoodlums, but we were. We were not of the opinion that you had the right to take our property when we're surfing in the free ocean, and um, you know, the council thought, no, we'll have jurisdiction over this and make some money. So we, we didn't like that attitude. We thought that was a bit rough. And, um, of course, we were rebellious. And um, a lot of friction was passed between the surf club, the beach inspectors, and our, and the South Bondi Board Riders Club for many years. And that went on for quite a number of years until someone came to their senses in the council and... Um, started booking parking metres and uh, things of that nature to, to get revenue rather than the uh, attack on the surfing industry and the young young kids at the beach. So uh, they stopped it back in uh, late, mid-60s and it uh, it ceased. So therefore the friction all ceased and we calmed down. <laughs> now those really were the formative days of surfing culture in Australia and you've already mentioned Midget Farrelly. As a teenager, did you have other surf role models? Um, yes, we did. We had local local personalities. Bob Evans, uh, the, one of the fam- more famous Australian surfers at the time back in the 60s, also an uh, editor of Surfing World magazine, Surfing World magazine, I think it was from memory. Bob Evans... Midget Farrelly, of course, he was also a member of us, of the South Bondi Board Riders Club for a while. Nat Young, he was a up-and-coming young surfer and subsequently went on to win Australian titles and world titles. There was Bob McTavish from Queensland. He was a mate of ours. And also the local local guys, guys like uh, Robert Keneally, Kevin Brennan, uh, who else do we have there that were uh, outstanding surfers of the day? Chris Brock, who's now still current at um, the Lennox Heads. And, uh, of course, there's the old stalwart Jack Bluey Mays, uh, who was uh, the, the uh, sweep or rower for uh, Bronte Surf Club in the surf boats for many years. Jack, he was a renowned sweep or participant in the surf club and was very good at the job and uh, Jack went on loved his surfing board riding especially with Malibu boards came into fashion in the 60s and then uh, Jack was uh, subsequently off to the to Hawaii and uh, the United States to represent the Australian team at one stage and they took a, a side to um, surf against the Hawaiians and the Americans on the Californian coast and, and in Oahu and Hawaii and uh, yeah they made a good fist of things and Jack became uh, well known worldwide for his antics in the surf had a column in the 
Daily Telegraph of a Sunday where he wrote a column about how to surf and the do's and don'ts of surfboard riding and uh, the safety aspects and and things of that nature and skill factors and it was a rather popular column in the Daily Telegraph of a Sunday Jacks and uh, yeah he was a wonderful old identity and knew him well and yeah very one of a kind sort of a guy of course times were tough and you had to be a bit tough in those days and fair enough he did what was necessary and uh, went on to live a, a good strong long life I think Jack died in his 80s years of age type of area and lived and surfed right up until his last wave yeah, a real icon of the uh, Australian historical uh, surfing events in this country. Yeah, Jack definitely saw a lot of the oceans. During World War Two, he was a merchant mariner, served as a member of the Merchant Navy on the great troop ship Queen Elizabeth. And uh, it just goes to show that post-war, mm. Jack maintained his social conscience and did a lot for the community down there. Can you tell me a bit about how your relationship with the Board Riders Club led to your involvement with the surf life-saving? Well, you know, after surfing at South Bondi, when Malibu boards came into fashion, you just had to get one. So we all purchased them eventually, myself uh, saving up money by selling newspapers at Paddington at the age of uh, 11 and 12 years of age, seven days a week twice a day, sold newspapers, saved up enough money to get my first fiberglass surfboard. A lot of guys did similar things. We finally got those and uh, went on to have some great times experimenting with the uh, surfing culture. It was all in big fashion at the time. Surfing music was uh, in fashion in the 60s. Little Paddy, Cold Joy and the Joy Boys, people like that were you know, very popular with the local community, with the young people especially, and the surfing culture really grew out of that through the early 60s. At Bondi especially, we weren't really liked by the Royal Life Saving Society clubbies, as we used to call them. They didn't particularly like us as well. They figured that we were um, infringing on whatever they were doing in the water and that we were too rebellious in attitude. Subsequently, they cordoned off a portion of South Bondi Beach with a flagpole. And if you surfed past that flagpole towards the centre of the beach, you could have your board confiscated and you were promptly um, attacked by the surf life saving community. That, you know, again, there they go, rolling up young guys who were there just to have a good time and enjoy the creature comforts of uh, nature and surf at Bondi. Subsequently, we, we had some fallouts. They used to have cabaret nights at North Bondi. Every surf club had them on the East Coast, everywhere. Um, cabaret nights where bands would come and surf music, as I said earlier, was all the rage. Little Paddy and all those people would perform and uh, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Cold Joy... The Deltones, all these um, iconic bands and singers and entertainers. A fabulous era. When when that all started, we would go to the cabaret nights and, of course, alcohol, jugs of alcohol were consumed by everybody. And um, 
these nights would eventually, uh, after large jugs of alcohol were consumed, friction would start between surf club members and board riding members who, of course, you'd hang with the people you knew. And, of course, a bit of friction would start and subsequently someone would say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing somehow and uh, fights would erupt and they were common, com- very common indeed. Every club had them, Coogee, Bronte, Tamarama, Bondi, Marubra, to name a few. Constant arguments and on these cabaret nights. Of course, large jugs of alcohol given to 17, 18, 19-year-old teenagers was, uh, yeah, it was like pouring petrol on a fo- an open fire. It uh, you know, was always going to rear up in their face. And uh, this is what happened, but, I mean, it was just part and parcel of the, of the signature of the times. It was, uh, you know, nothing too serious, of course. It was a, a fight and it would be gang fights and then one or two scuffles here and there and, at Bronte Gully, you'd be out in the gully up in the grassed areas in the dark and you'd be duking it out with each other and stuff like that and there was no real harm done until, of course, people would come down and invade the cabaret nights and create trouble from outside the beach area and uh, some of the toughies from various areas would come down and visit and, and test their skills out on the locals and, of course, you know, then again, that was a different kettle of fish, you know. We'd send out our best guns and, uh, you know, they would go to it and uh, made the best man win and those sort of events. They occurred uh, rather rarely, not often, but, um, you know, they were on a rare occasion, but they did occur and some notorious fights did occur at uh, Bronte Gully, North Bondi Surf Club, Coogee and Maroubra. So... Yeah, I can attest to a few of those. That were the rough days. Like the old wild west in the US, I guess. It was, you know, leave your guns at the door, but uh, no guns involved, of course, which was good. But it was all just hands and fists and feet and whatever. <laughs> yeah, so that was how that started. And that, was, that caused a friction between the clubs. But I, I and my, some of my friends, well, my main mate, Brad Mays, that was Jack Mays' son, Brad. He, at the time, back in the uh, 70s, 74, 75, around that time, Brad decided that we were going to go to the uh, surf club, Royal Life Saving Society, the local surf club of Bondi, and um, take the olive branch of peace to them, and asked them could we join the surf club and become life-saving members. So four of us got together, Gary Bostock, myself, Mick Gibson and Brad Mays, and, oh, sorry, another guy, Nick Kane, was with us. That's five. Um, we decided to go there and said, look, we want to join the surf club. And they said, no, no, you guys are South Bondi board riders. You're rebellious bastards. Go away, you know, and... Uh, no, we said, no, we're serious. Subsequently, they stayed um and art about it, and they said, well, we we, we could probably um, train you up for the bronze medallion. And Brad said, well, look, yeah, but we only one thing, we want to do it in the middle of winter. And they said, oh, we don't do bronze um, 
bronze medallion uh, training in winter. We only do them in the summer months. And Brad said, no, well, we're not doing it unless we do it in the middle of winter. We want to do it the right way. And uh, he said, no, the captain said, no, of North Bondi said, no, we don't we don't train. And one of the guys there, one of the club members said, older members said, put his hand up and said, I'll train him. He was a trainer for the club. And uh, they said, yeah, well, you know, if you want to train him, Bob, you can train him. And uh, subsequently, the four of us, Brad, myself, Gary Bostock and Mick Gibson, went and uh, done the, the winter bronze training squad, the first one, I think, ever at North Bondi Surf Club back in 1960, uh, 1970, sorry, 1976. As you can imagine, the water was very, very cold. Surf could be of any nature. It could be offshore and flat, or it could be onshore and raging point-to-point 20-foot waves. Winter uh, has that kind of effect on the oceans on the eastern seaboard. So it could have been anything, but we, we went and went ahead, and we did it, and uh, it was uh, the full-on life-saving treatment they gave us. We did Belton Real Rescues, which was the old-style um, the old style um, Belton Real Rescues, which aren't performed nowadays any longer. They've got boats and skis and things of that, paddle boards and everything of that nature now, to, and helicopters to assist, but nowadays, in those days we had none of that. It was Belton Real... And the odd um, torpedo boy structure that you uh, floaty that you took out with you and wrapped around someone's waist, put a long rope and harness over your shoulders and swum them in back to shore. That was a tough gig. So, uh, yeah, that was pretty tough days. But we did it. And we got through the training in 1976. And uh, we joined the surf club. And I went on to be captain of patrol 12 at North Bondi for about three years. After that, I stayed on. Brad went on to become a beach inspector employed by Waverley Council, and uh, he was a beach inspector at Bondi and also at Maroubra. He was very efficient, Brad, uh, very efficient indeed. Great swimmer, great surfer, good board rider, fit as a Mallee Bull and six foot three, so he was... Um, had all the attributes of a bronze dozzy, and uh, yeah, he went on to um, do quite a few rescues with myself and others, and uh, we did, you know, quite a few things like that. I think I pulled uh, five people in one particular day, I remember. Captain of Patrol 12, I'm supposed to be on the beach with the radio and uh, coordinating rescues. Well, I got most of it done, but there was that many people when the uh, tide went out and the sandbank collapsed and people were just floundering everywhere I just had to get into the action so I left the radio with another younger member of my squad and he um, coordinated the rescue boats and uh, ambulances and whatever we needed and I went in and pulled five people out of the water that particular day myself it was uh, quite an eventful day it's pretty tough when you're doing rescues in surf you know, the waves are breaking over your head and you're trying to get a person who's swallowed half of the Southern Pacific Ocean and they're panicking and you get out to them and they just want to drag you under the water and drown you. So you've got to be, uh, you know, on your game to steer clear of that and get them calmed down and wrap the torpedo boy around their midsection and swim them in or get them on a board and paddle them in somehow. 
anyway, yeah, that all went on and uh, it was a bit of fun and I had three good years there and, you know, it didn't go much longer than that. It was, uh, yeah, that's another story, but, uh, yeah, won't go into that. But, um, yeah, it was fun days, good days. Royal Life Saving Society is a great institution, I must admit. To this day, I support them personally. As I say, I've saved, what, 13 people's lives now, not all in the ocean. The majority of them, my people I've saved are are from drowning and ocean uh, activities, both here and overseas. But a couple have been work-related and industrial actions where I've had to perform my medical treatments on them. That was... uh, supplied to me the knowledge by the Royal Life Saving Society which to this day I'm totally proud of very much so I've been with the community at Eastern Suburbs training Paddington Colts especially it was I started with the D grade boys rugby league team and they were like 16, 17 years of age at the time my um, knowledge of health and fitness and medical practice was no end of great assistance to me during those years that I was with them I've had to use it on many occasions for injuries you know concussions cuts contusions all sorts of um, all sorts of problems and the medical training I had was very instrumental in helping a lot of those young boys continue their career to this day except one 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 young chap who was not in my team, the opposition team broke his neck in a scrum that collapsed, and I believe he's a quadriplegic still to this day. Unfortunate, but uh, nothing you can do about that other than don't compound the problem, don't make it any worse, and keep him safe and sound until professional care arrives. And it did in the form of a helicopter at Waverley Oval, it landed on the football field one Sunday and uh, we subsequently put this young bloke on a Jordan's frame stretcher, evac'd him out of the uh, football field on the helicopter and took him to the Royal North Shore Spinal Unit and uh, unfortunately, but I believe he's to this day still a quadriplegic. Very sad case, but he's not the only one. They're the things you've got to worry about with um, contact sports and you need a proper first aid person I've got, to, I've got to say this it's a passion of mine I wrote a book at the time in the 70s because I was frustrated by the fact that the trainers and medicos in junior rugby league in eastern suburbs had no idea what they were doing at the time the standard procedure was a bucket of water and a sponge and that's all you had when you went out onto the field to take care of an injured rugby league kid, mainly young kids. Totally insufficient, and I was very upset about that, so I wrote a booklet. Um, I wrote a book up on first aid, the first person to give aid to an injured person. I printed this booklet, the five-page booklet up, out of my own volition, printed it up and handed it out to the local clubs in the eastern suburbs to give to their medicos come trainers so that they had a little bit more insight in what to do how to stem a bleed properly um, how to handle concussive head injuries you do not do not 
as the 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 time in those years was administer smelling salts to an injured player who was hit knocked out unconscious smelling salts raises the blood pressure instantly and can cause cerebral hemorrhage and bleeding from the nostril and ears and put that person in a, in a life or death situation rather than you know a knock on the head and uh, a headache for a few days and in the concussive stage those sort of things really got up my my nostrils and hence my little booklet don't know how well it was received but or whatever but it was up to them once I'd given them the booklet so yeah anyway so that all that all stemmed from the Royal Life Saving Society I did 15 years of that and uh, went on to coach, trained up and got a certificate as a fully qualified rugby league coach. I was one of the first to attend a class at Eastern Suburbs Leagues Club. Uh, I don't know what year it was, 73, 74, around that. And uh, had a lot of good times with the young guys, watching them perform. Some of them went on to, a couple of them went on to play for Australia represent the country Brian Fletcher um, his brother David didn't represent Australia but was a wonderful uh, football player and it was a pleasure to be in his company we're still good mates at that right up to this very day people like that it's just wonderful to see how they got through their career as a junior rugby league player not forgetting that as junior rugby league players you did it for the love of the game purely for the love of the game. There was no money involved. The uh, only incentive was that you turned up and played for your club and for that jumper that you wore. Yeah, they did that, and those boys went through hell. They, uh, I can attest to that, running out in the field every time one of them went down with an injury for 15 years, and, uh, yeah, so it was fun days. Yeah, You're very fortunate, Vic, aren't you? have had the opportunity to help so many people through Surf Life Saving and through Rugby League as a volunteer. It's a wonderful contribution, and I'm sure you've benefited yourself from all those experiences. Where did they take you next? What happened in life next that was um, a great opportunity or a wonderful memory for you? Uh, Well, from there, things sort of progressed a bit. I uh, Just normal, normal life travels... Anything that would occur, I had this disposition in life to be wanting to help. One case was I was working at the Coast Golf Course. Uh, My job was to drive around the golf course, make sure that the teams were not lagging behind or dawdling on the course, keep the play constantly moving and also run a bit of security for the course. One particular day after couple of years of working there a young guy was reported to me had fallen off the cliff face over at the coast so I drove over to the this area that was told he was and uh, looked over the cliff and I saw this body laying down the bottom in the rocks on the rocks sandstone rocks and uh, I rushed down I climbed down the rocks got down to him and it was this young teenager and uh, he was laying down semi-conscious in a bad way, but um, he'd actually had his head in a puddle of high-tide water, like, and he was almost drowning on the land type of thing. 
So anyway, I got him out of this this uh, high tide mark pool of salt water and seaweed and rolled him on his back and checked his vitals and found he's, you know, breathing okay. So I didn't have to perform CPR or anything of that nature. But lucky I had mobile phones in those, those days. That was uh, back in the 90s. And I called for assistance on Triple O. Police rescue squad arrived, bogged their heavy vehicle truck, which was a massive big truck, in the golf course muddy conditions. It was raining and wet weather all week. It bogged down and never made it to the cliff face. They walked out and then next thing you knew, a helicopter arrived overhead, the Westpac uh, rescue helicopter, and two medical assistants rappelled down out of the helicopter on ropes, landed on the rock face. We're right on the ocean level. The waves were actually breaking on the rocks near us. And um, they rappelled down examined the kid and saw that he had a broken collarbone and a busted leg. But other than that, he was in relatively good condition. And uh, I'd, I'd, I'd pulled his head out of the water so he didn't drown. So that was good. And uh, subsequently, they put bandages and splints on him. And again, we put him on a stretcher, which is a, a slat-type stretcher, a framework with slats. It was a, quite a good invention the slats, you push the plastic slats underneath the, the patient, put the frame around the person over the top of them, and then clip the plastic slats onto the the frame, and then you can lift the patient up without rolling them over and maybe disturbing or compounding a broken limb or neck. Yeah, that was a great invention. Anyway, I distinctly remember the guy saying to me, uh, look, we're going to get the helicopter in, pick him up and take him up, and they did. And then they said to me, look, you you can't get out of here by the time we, we take off, so we're hovering above you. So what I suggest you do, Victor, is get down low, hang on to a rock, because when this helicopter turns, this is what they said to me, it turns its bum towards you, the wash from this downdraft of the propellers, the r- rotors, will blow you off the rock face. And I said, you're kidding, aren't you? And they said, no, we're serious. So I did. I just remember getting low into a crevice and held onto the sandstone rock and the helicopter, it took. It was hovering over the top of us. When it went up higher, it winched up the guy out on the stretcher and the two doctors went on board. And uh, it turned. And when it turned, it, it, it blew everything off the rock Bar me and the actual cliff face itself. It was quite powerful. I was I was quite amazed. All the bandages and all this, the gauze and all the packaging and everything just blew, just blew instantly up into the air like a, you know, bloody um, ticker tape bloody parade. Yeah, it almost blew me off. And lucky I did get down low and hold on to the rock face. It was fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, that kid was all right. He. But I found out that he was throwing stones at the fishermen that were down on the rocks, and uh, which wasn't a bright thing for him to do. He was from the western suburbs. He was from Bankstown. Young kid, he was only about 16. Um, he then overbalanced and throwing stones at the guys and uh, went over and off the cliff edge and landed some 10 metres below on the rocks. Lucky he didn't go in the ocean, otherwise he would have drowned because I wouldn't have got to him in time. But, yeah, so, yeah, there you go, see? 
First aid can be a great thing. Everyone should learn it. Everyone should learn CPR in my my book. You never know when your family or loved ones or friends or strangers, doesn't matter who it is, needs, needs first aid, and you could be the first aider to be there to save their life. So learn it. Everyone should learn it. And, um, yeah, get it going and, uh, you know, take a page out of the book of the Lifesavers and, yeah, help the community out in that way. Later on in life, you worked as a stevedore, is that right? Yes, Daniel. uh, 22 years, as a matter of fact, from 1974 through to 1994. 20 years, actually 22 years service, but I did 20 years straight as a stevedore and yeah it was uh also the medical side came in down there for a number of occasions when with industrial accidents uh, one guy lost a thumb and was torn off by a, a rather heavy chain and we were working down in the port kembla steelworks wharves i went down there for a, a week of work when they were short-handed asked for volunteers so and this guy kept putting his hand below the link on a a reeved, they call it a reeved chain link. It's a chain that goes around some railway lines, which are very heavy steel, and um, it goes through a ring, a ring, and the chain goes through the ring, and then the the chain goes up and then is put onto the hook of the crane. If you put your hand below the ring and not above the ring and where the chain comes through as a single chain... The ring can slip on the metal when it takes the load, and if your hand's near it, well, then it'll hurt your hand. And uh, this guy kept telling him, don't put your hand below the ring. He kept putting his hand below there, and, of course, this guy thought he knew more than silly me. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, in those days, back in early days, a couple of beers at Smoko... Um, yeah, it was always a good thing for some of the older members and he'd had a couple of beers, came back down below with me on the ship and the first big sling of railway lines that came in, he um, put his hand below the link and I said, just steady steady it and we'd land it and then we unhook it and get another one and uh, he had his hand below and as soon as the the weight came down and the crane landed the railway lines on the timber the link dropped down the chain and right onto his thumb and uh, it's a very very heavy heavy links very big heavy chain and you got like you know 15 ton of steel railway lines on the bottom of it and uh, it took his thumb off and just ripped his thumb straight off he screamed and and run up the ladder and went to the first aid shed Subsequently, I um, looked up at the chain and there was his glove. We wore gloves, of course, and uh, it had torn through the glove and his thumb was inside the glove. I subsequently removed the glove and the thumb from the link of the chain, went up the ladder myself, got up out of the ship, went up to the first aid room and uh, he was there with our first aid attendant and he had called an ambulance. He was bleeding like a stuck pig. Yeah. So then I cut the thumb out of the glove, removed the stitching of the glove, got the thumb out, put his thumb in some cold water in a plastic bag and then put another plastic bag with ice in it 
around it and or put the thumb in the ice bag but in cold water but not touching the ice so they didn't freeze it and burn it and uh, send it off to the hospital with the ambulance and hopefully they might have been able to reattach his thumb for him. That's the only way you can do an injury such as that by don't put it on the ice, put it in cold water, then the cold water and the appendage in the ice bag so it doesn't touch the ice and uh, that's the only way you can keep it and give the doctors a chance to reattach any missing body parts, mate. So, yeah, there you go. Uh, Yeah, so that's one of them that happened and uh, that's where the medical training they gave me at North Bondi Surf Club was invaluable in those sort of instances. Yeah. So starting the Surf Life Saving Club sounds like a wonderful start for any young people in life. Set you up with a lot of good skills and a change of attitude maybe that opened new doors. Yeah, well, um, yeah, it uh, it certainly is a great uh, institution to be involved in. And recommended for any young person, boy or girl, doesn't matter nowadays, of course. It's a healthy, very healthy environment. You've got the best of, you know, that nature's got to offer, the ocean, the fresh air, the sunshine, and uh, good camaraderie with uh, some like-minded people. It's really good. You know, it's an institution that should be fully supported by governments, and which it is, and the public communities forever and a day especially in an island country such as Australia and uh, we are renowned for our life saving techniques and abilities have been for many years now and uh, we're all very proud of it and if you ever join the Royal Life Saving Society you too I guess could feel a little bit of that and become a a life saver and do the utmost honourable thing and save someone's life mate you know a wonderful thing to do. All this talk about saving lives and service to the community, it's not a new thing. You had a great uncle who served in World War One. Can you tell us a bit about him? Uh, yeah, that'd be um, Charles Edward Fitzhenry, um, who joined up World War One under the name of Doyle. Now, he got in as being underage of course as a lot of young guys volunteered as young conscripts in those days he wasn't the only one of course but for some reason they all felt a duty to the country and they had to go and serve he joined the navy as uh, Doyle under his mother's maiden name and uh, subsequently did a few years service in the navy and then transferred to the army which was his first passion he couldn't get in being underage and you needed parental permission to get in he subsequently transferred over to the army volunteered as a stretcher bearer on the western front in france uh, close to the end of world war one i believe the story goes that he went out to um to assist a, a wounded fellow comrade soldier from the aif he did it on numerous occasions. One of his buddies in the trenches over there said he was wrote a letter, and which I have, and said that he was the best man that ever drew a breath. He reckons he was such a terrific bloke. He volunteered to go out and get a 
a wounded soldier and was subsequently shot by an opposition sniper on the 11th of August, 1918. It was a rather brutal wound that he did receive, a head wound. It didn't kill him instantly. He was uh, repatriated to a hospital. He lasted 11 days and subsequently died of his uh, injuries on the 22nd of August, 1918, after 11 days of... um, You can only imagine what it would be like to be shot in the head area. In those days, I don't know what the the Germans were using rifles, but they would have been something of a similar nature to our uh, Lee-Enfield 303s that we we used. So it would have been a um, a rather nasty head wound. He lasted 11 days under those conditions. Obviously a very, very tough man to hang on to that long, but subsequently died 22nd of August. And as we all know, World War One finished, I think it was September 1918. Yeah, you know, so he passed away a couple of months prior to the end of World War One. He was... Uh, I only discovered all this because of a program on television came through, I think it was 60 Minutes, was doing a documentary program on uh, France, and there was a cave over there pronunciations, the French pronunciation is a little bit above my vocabulary, I'm sorry, but uh, Nauors, N-A-O-U-R-S, there's a cave there and he's, he's had an, a scratched out inscription on one of the walls there. Charles Edward Fitzhenry, he was from Casino area originally. He had his AIF number or something there and I just happened to notice it on TV and then a few months later, uh, one of my relatives up in the Northern Rivers area where I'm now residing contacted me and said, you're from down south, you're a Fitzhenry family member from down south. I said, yes, and told me about Charles, how he went to France with his father and found the cave with the inscriptions of all these Australian, I don't know whether they were held prisoner there or whether they were holding up in the cave. I don't know the full history as yet. But they were more than welcomed by the local people at Villas Britanneur. And in late report is a town, obviously, in France, uh, where um, the body of my great-uncle Charles Fitzhenry now resides in the um, War Memorial Cemetery in late report in Montheuin Cemetery in France. It's over a hundred years now, but uh, yeah, so he was a hero in my book to volunteer to go out to help, <laughs> you know, so sometimes it's good to help and sometimes you, you know, suffer the consequences. It's life, isn't it? Mm. But, uh, you know, what do you do? He died in the service of his country and uh, I'm very proud of the fact that he had a go, you know. Yeah, so I did it in a different way. <laughs> yeah. But that's what it's all about, isn't it, Vic? It's all yeah. about having a go. Yeah, well, that's right. It's, I guess it's a bit of an old Aussie saying, isn't it? You know, have a go and uh, be there for your mates, of course. It's a bit of an old Aussie tradition, all stemmed from World War One, basically. You know, the Bush era of the shearing era and all the problems the Bush people had with uh, fighting you know, sizes of combs on the shears and the shearing crises and, and all that solidarity comes from mateship. And friendship. It's so important, really, to have good friends in life 
and good mateships, or, or at least experience them. It is very, very good because I think it instills a great deal of character in a person to understand how the other person exists and to watch what they go through and all of a sudden see them stumble and fall in life. And then you're there and you can help, be it physically, mentally, verbally, financially, it doesn't matter. But, I mean, the idea is to just be there, just to be there for someone. It's so important, honestly. Um, if you're not there, there's no one at times. There's no one. And that person could pay the, the utmost sacrifice, and that's to die. Yeah, so if you're there, there's every possibility you can save that person or help that person somehow, talk them out of their um, panic attack or their their chance of going into shock, which which does occur in in major injuries, which is a big killer. And the injury sometimes does not necessarily kill the person, but the fact that they fret and carry on about the injury so much that they go into a shock mental attitude and that kills a person so if you're there you can offer comfort and um, contentment and support and at times that can be the difference between them surviving and and not so yeah be there just the Aussie go eh? you know help your mate out thanks a lot Victor really appreciate your time today it's been very interesting it's a pleasure Daniel yeah pleasure guys